Today's episode of Wings for Breakfast is brought to you by Game Time. Okay, folks, time for a little pop quiz. Do you think Red Wings tickets are cheaper three weeks or three hours before the game? You can find the answer with Game Time, the ticket buying app that proves patience is more than just a virtue. It can save you some serious cash. Game Time is the leader in last minute tickets. Pick your deal, see the view from where you're sitting, and buy in two taps. More than 12 million fans have downloaded the Game Time app and discovered the fastest, easiest way to get into the game. So download Game Time in the App Store or Google Play, work that clock to your advantage, and score last minute tickets. Welcome to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I am Max Boltman. With me, as always, is Prashant Iyer. And Jimmy Howard is not Dominic Hasek, is the news of the day. Prashant, how are you doing? Doing pretty well. To be honest, I think I'd be doing a little bit better if uh, Howard had just fully committed to that Hasek-Gabarik flip from several years back and just taken the penalty. I think it would have been a little bit more entertaining. Yeah, certainly. And and no shortage of entertainment in last night's Red Wings 5-2 loss of the Toronto Maple Leafs. It was probably a little bit closer than the final score indicated, but really strong put-away period by the Leafs in the third. And the Red Wings fall to 3-2, and two, which, all things considered, is probably a little bit better than you'd have expected uh, a week and a half ago going into this season. But uh, Prashant, what, what stood out to you from last night's game? What, what did you take away from it? Well, I think most importantly now we know the Wings aren't going to go 81 and 1, which again I am color me shocked that 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 that's going to happen. Um, but taking a look at last night's game, I think the most important thing and really what's been the theme over the last couple of games is that fourth line's been really really good. Uh, and unfortunately, outside of the Bertuzzi, Larkin, Mantha line, those second and third lines have been really really bad. Um, but let's focus first on on the fourth line. So the Wings' fourth line of Jacob De La Rose, Justin Abdelkader, Darren Helm, they were responsible for both of the Red Wings' goals last night. Great plays on on both. Uh, the Abdelkader pass from behind the net, he's been doing a really good job of, of setting that up for the last handful of games, and the Wings have been able to generate some great scoring chances from there. Um, in just a handful of minutes, they were arguably the Wings' best line, and you could make the case that they were the best line for probably the third game in a row or at the very worst, the second best line. Um, So what, you know, what are they doing in the, in the offensive zone that's made them so effective, Max? Yeah, I think it's two big things. The first, and I think you noted it is those advocator passes from behind the net are something that have proven to be really effective. I think that's an area of the ice that he can be more effective than he's been in the last couple of years, just because he is a pretty strong guy. He is able to control the puck when he's focused on it and when he's got guys going to the slot. It's not something that we've seen him do a whole lot in the last couple of years, but if this line gets the chemistry going where they know that that's something that they want to do, it's it could be kind of repeatable for the Red Wings. And that's the use, the word that Jeff Blaschel used last night talking about their success is that he thinks it can be repeatable. The other component to it is that he's kind of almost told them to be a little bit more aggressive on the forecheck. They think De La Rose in particular can play a little bit too safe sometimes, and, and that makes sense, right, because he's often been a defense-first player. 
But they think that if that line can be really aggressive on the forecheck, that's kind of the kind of havoc they can create where the puck ends up behind the net and they can create those kind of feeds to the front. I think you'd have to give that a fair bit of the credit for their success so far. Um, and I, I'm curious, you know, I haven't watched the games. It certainly stood out to me as one of the Red Wings' two best lines so far, five games into the season. Uh, how does it compare when you, when you look at it statistically? Is that is that are the numbers bearing that out? Yeah. So when you take a, and again, we're going to use the expected goals for metric. So we've talked about this on previous podcasts. Expected goals for uh, basically describes the quality of shots taken by factoring in the location factoring in the angle the shot was taken from, factoring in based on the model, sometimes the shooter uh, and sometimes the goalie. And so using all of that, we can basically assess how good of a shot was was taken. And so using the data that's available over at moneypuck.com, um, if we restrict this just to the lines that have played greater than 35 minutes, um, and that 35 minutes is an arbitrary cutoff just to... We- kind of wit down some of the line combinations that haven't spent a ton of time together. Um, if we look at just the lines uh, with more than 35 minutes played at five on five, the top five lines in the NHL right now, based on expected goals for percentage are in Buffalo, you have the Gurgensons, Larson, Ocposo line in Vegas. You've got Marcheseau, Carlson, Smith um, in Philly. You've got Lindbaum, Couturier and Konechny. Nashville, you've got Forsberg, Duchesne, Granlin. Those are the top four lines um, based on expected goals for percentage. But coming in at five is Abdelkader, De La Rose, and Helm at 74%. Now, 74% is certainly not a sustainable number by any means. Usually the top lines in the NHL that play a reasonable sample um, can expect to slot in somewhere around 58 59%, and that's the very top lines. These guys are clicking right now at 74%, which is the fifth best mark in the NHL. And if you just list off the guys that are right behind them, in Carolina's Teravine and Ajo Niederreiter, Washington's got Vrana, Eller, and Oshie. And then right after them at eight is Bertuzzi, Larkin, Mantha at 66%. So I think it's really impressive the way they've performed so far. And a little bit about what you're talking there with Blaschel kind of enabling them to be a little bit more aggressive, not playing so safe. I think you're really seeing that in their ability to cycle the puck down low. But I think the important difference for them this year relative to previous years is simply that Blaschel is actually putting them in a position to succeed. He's not asking them to match the top line every night, play most of their minutes in that defensive shutdown role. They're getting more minutes against other teams' bottom six lines and therefore, they're actually able to work those lines a little bit. They did match a little bit against the Matthews line last night, but most of their minutes really came feeding against Toronto's kind of third line. Yeah, I mean, they got, they got. I think, based on Abdelkader's, uh, you know, natural stature kind of has your opposition lines where you can see how much everyone played against everyone else. And the, the number one forward that Abdelkader was against was Matthews at si- about six minutes at five on five. And so... I think penalty kill can always skew that too a little bit because, uh, I mean, when when we're not talking about five on five at, at all minutes, he played about seven forty against Matthews, and a lot of that because Abdulkader kills penalties. Matthews obviously plays on Toronto's power play, but at five on five, even though the Matthews line was able to get um, a little bit more of the, of the kind of Corsi and shot share, the Abdulkader line got eighty two percent of the expected goals against when win matched against the Matthews line. Six minutes obviously is a super small sample. I'm not gonna read a whole lot into that. But uh it's kinda interesting that they were able to control the 
at least the most dangerous areas of the ice against that line. Like you said, I don't think this is necessarily sustainable, but there are some things about it, as Blashell pointed out, that are repeatable, and that is the the style they are playing, the ways they are looking to not just get the puck deep, but get the puck deep, go get it, and then set it up into the scoring areas. If you're if you're choosing to be optimistic about this line's prospects going forward, I think that's what you're banking on is the fact that it's not like they're getting the benefit of a bunch of you know kind of dangles that the teams are gonna are gonna shut down from them. It's that these are very much simple bread and butter plays where get the puck deep, go get it, get it to a scoring area. The shot percentage I think will eventually um, you know do the job for you in terms of regression, but uh, in terms of just make creating those opportunities, it, there's no um, there's no reason they can't do it on a, albeit slower pace, but continue to do it uh, in terms of the the style that they're playing. I mean, it's it's very much a repeatable style. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think, importantly, a lot of their value has actually come just from limiting chances against, and therefore, when they do get their opportunities, that percentage actually looks a little bit better, simply because they're just giving up very little, and they're playing exactly the way Blashell wants them to. Um, so more to come on that, but as of right now, if you're looking at expected goals for percentage, the wings are the only team in the NHL with two of the top 10 lines. So why, why are they losing the games? Why are they three and two and why are they not in a better position? Um, and I think that comes into a discussion of how the second and the third lines have played. So Max, what did you see last night? Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating, right? Because the Red Wings lost by three goals. They gave up five, right? So five, two game, kind of a blowout. Not a single goal from any of Toronto's double-digit millionaire-per-year players. Nothing from Tavares, nothing from Marner, nothing from Matthews, nothing from, uh, even when you go down a tier, nothing from Nylander, nothing from Morgan Riley. How does that happen? Well, the Red Wings' second and third lines kind of got bullied a little bit. I mean, I think Tara Hirose might have been a minus four in this one. Athanasiou a minus three. I want to say Glenn Denning was also a minus three. Toronto didn't score on the power play. How are the Toronto Maple Leafs winning five to two without any goals from their their money makers or from their power play? It's because their bottom lines absolutely did the work against the Red Wings' middle lines, and uh, it's it's it was a tough night for for the Athanasiou line in particular. I mean, I think you you wonder if the timing, if it's about timing, if it's something else. I I still maintain I think the the composition of that line makes some sense but it's not clicking right now and i think you have to you have to look at the um those middle lines as the reason the ernie n and philpola line you know i think philpola actually had an okay game maybe his best one so far last night from my view but uh, that line you know just didn't really kind of do a whole lot of of anything not not in terms of like they were tremendously awful they just weren't particularly impactful and i wonder that line, I do wonder, like, is is N kind of play more of a simple game, whereas maybe Philpola is trying to slow things down and and uh, and not do so much, just kind of one touch, get it deep. I don't know. I I am having a hard time kind of processing what's going on with that line, but whatever the answer is, it's it's pretty clear. Like you're saying that the Red Wings have two lines that are driving at least, uh, if if not the shot share, then at least the the dangerous chance share. And then two lines that are getting beaten. And, you know, I don't know what the answer to it is. I don't know if it's something that you just want to give time, if it's something that do you consider shaking up the lineup. But, you know, when you look at a result like last night, especially considering all, all the context that goes into it in terms of who was doing the damage, uh, that, that's a tough night for those middle two lines. Yeah. If you take last night's game, so the Maple Leafs threw 67 shots towards the net. Not all of them hit the net. Some were blocked, some missed, some on goal. 
A lot uh, were blocked. Through, I think it was like yeah, 24 all, were blocked. Yeah. So the Wings did a good job getting in front of a lot of the shots. If you look at those 67 shots, though, Athanasiou was on the ice for 30 of them in 13 minutes. Uh, the 13 minutes that Athanasiou was on the ice, he was on for 30 of those shots directed towards the net, which is unbelievable. And in fact, when he was on the ice, the Wings only directed six towards the Toronto net. So that's basically, you can do the math, but that's an awful shot share for the Wings to have in 13 minutes of ice time. And in fact, that's really where the game was decided. Athanasiou's line um, was on the ice for three of the Leafs' goals against, uh, which is a... Basically, it seals the nail in the coffin. The Wings aren't going to be able to compete against a team like Toronto if, you know, they're able to shut down Toronto's top two lines, shut down the power play, like you said. But Toronto's fourth line is able to feast on what should be Detroit's second line. And so if we use that same expected goals for metric that we use to just place Abdelkader, De La Rose, and Helm and Bertuzzi, Larkin, Mantha, placing those two lines in the top ten, the, the undoing for the Red Wings is that that second line of Hiroshi, Athanasiu, and Glendening is actually second worst in the NHL at 25%. And so we just said Abdelkader, De La Rose, and Helmer at 74%. Bertuzzi, Larkin, Mantha, 66%, both top 10 lines. If you liberalize that to just greater than 20 minutes played instead of greater than 35 to be able to include this Hiroshi, Athanasiu, Glendening line, they are second worst at 25%. And so everything the Wings are gaining from their first and fourth lines is basically being given up by the second line. And so if you just really try to dissect how they played last night, it comes down to just a number of defensive miscues uh, in their own zone. Uh, if you go goal by goal, that first goal, you know, Chalowski's got the puck secured behind the net. He's starting to break up ice. You have Hiroshi and Glendening start to fly the zone to give him outlets. But Immediately, Chalowski gets checked. Hiroshi and Glendening are late to react. And then Athanasiu just kind of gets cut, uh, caught puck watching and drifting towards Chalowski and completely misses Shore, who's coming in behind in trailer, and he's the guy who scores the goal. Um, you look at the second goal against, you've got Hiroshi basically just watching the puck off of that faceoff, get shot towards the net, completely loses track of a uh, curfoot in front of the net. And it's very late to get back to Kerfoot, who has basically all the time in the world to punch the rebound in. And then on the third goal, you see Athanasiu basically chase Muzzin up the ice. But as Muzzin drifts down in the zone, Hironik turns his back to him and Athanasiu doesn't really communicate. And you've got a wide open cross slot one timer that no goalie's really going to be able to stop. So it's just a series of defensive miscues for this line. And I think at some point, you're going to have to look at breaking them up. And I think Blashill's kind of realized that as basically for most of last night, that the second and third line were basically in a line blender. But it's interesting because what do you, what do you really do with him? I know Mantha saw a little bit of time with that line, and, and maybe that's the option that they'd choose to go. Mantha, I think, even got double shifted to some degree a little bit uh, to, to get with some of those players. But you look at the composition of that line, right? Why is everyone where they are? Well, they like Athanasiu with Hiroshi because it gives Hiroshi kind of a finisher to, to maximize kind of his best talent, which is playmaking. They like Hiroshi with Athanasiu because it's someone who can and will get him the puck. And they like Glendening because when the puck is in the defensive zone, someone has to get it out. Well, that's that hasn't happened, but is the solution to put an even more offensive-minded player between those two? Because if the shot, if they're giving up 30 shots in a game, I can tell you taking Luke Glendening off someone's line has rarely 
cause them to give up less shots, right? Like it's an interesting problem because I don't know who the answer is. I don't think the answer is necessarily Philpola, although that would probably be the first guy to try. Um, I don't know if he actually solves the problem big picture for you. You know, my, my gut is to say, do you try Svechnikov into the lineup with, you know, one of those two players and try the other one maybe on the third line or, or move him around. But, you know, there was one play where I think it was, I don't know when, when the game it was, but Hiroshi tried kind of a, a cross ice two line pass to Athanasiu and it would have sprung Athanasiu for a breakaway and it missed him by like five feet. And that was where I started to wonder, man, is this just like a timing thing that, you know, cause I think any line with Athanasiu on it is, is going to be defined by the big plays more than anything else. And so if you hit a big player too, that's really what you need from that line, that and not giving up three, three goals. But, um, I don't know what the answer is here because I, I think all of these guys are kind of in places that make sense. And so maybe it's something that just takes a little bit of experimentation. I, I don't think you break up the Lark and Mantha Bertuzzi line if you can avoid it because of the chemistry they have. But at, at the same time, what are the other options? Yeah, you basically outlined the three options that, that Blashill has in front of him. So option one is he scrambles those second and third lines, and maybe he tries a little bit of a flip-flop of wingers. And so we saw a little bit last night where Philpola and Ernie ended up playing with Athanasiu, uh, and you had Glenn Denning and Hiroshi maybe drop down a little bit uh, to play with Philpola. That happened on a couple of shifts. Um, so that's kind of option one is do you just flip-flop the wingers and see if that helps? Now, like, to your point, I don't know that that makes them any better defensively, but does it at least make them a little bit better offensively? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Philpola certainly is a little bit more offensive-minded, although he's not the same Philpola that was here uh, when the Wings were winning the Stanley Cup and competing in the finals, so he's certainly lost a step. So I don't know that he solves that. Second option, like you outlined, is is it time to bring in Svechnikov? Because I think last night really illustrated the Wings... Second and third lines are just completely lacking any sort of scoring punch or defensive punch for that matter. Um, so does it make sense to continue trotting out Christopher N or Hiroshi had such a rough night? Do you give him a night off to sit basically up in the press box? We have to remember, you know, he this guy's a, only got 16 NHL games. Um, it's not like he should be a guarantee for the lineup when the Wings haven't routinely done that. Do you scratch him, let him watch a game from a, from the press box and get Svechnikov some time on that line where he's shown to be a little bit more of a possession player with the puck? A more third, like the Wings were doing last night and like you and I talked about on our last episode, is it time to start double shifting Larkin and Mantha or even breaking up the, that line in particular to get one or more of those guys with Athanasiu to kind of protect him, but also let him play a little bit more offensively. And I think Mantha's honestly a great guy to do that. If I were to to switch up the lines, I may consider, even though it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, flip Perosi up to the first line to basically protect him and let him still play with a little bit of offense and bring Mantha down to the second line to play with Athanasiu and see if that helps in any capacity. But I don't know that there's a right or wrong answer here. I think it just illustrates the overall um, issue for the Wings is that there's a lack of of offensive talent on this roster once you get past that top line. That's an interesting one I hadn't considered, but I like that idea of dropping Mantha down with Glendening and Athanasiu for two reasons. Number one, Hiroshi feeding Larkin and Bertuzzi 
Um, they're, those are both guys who will shoot the puck. It's no problem there. They're both guys who will forecheck the puck and do a lot of the dirty work that Hiroshi's body type just isn't suited for. That's not a criticism of, of Hiroshi, to be honest. Like, Obviously, you'd like all of your players to go to the corners and be willing to do those things. But just from a comparative advantage standpoint, Hiroshi is not the guy that you want going into the corners when you could have Bertuzzi or Larkin doing it. Those two are way more likely to come out with the puck and way less likely to get hurt doing it. So um, balancing that top line, it makes sense. But also, man, Anthony Manta is not a one-dimensional player here. So if you drop him down to a line with Athanasiu and Glenn Denning, he helps you defensively. And even though he doesn't necessarily have this quite the same playmaking as Taro Hirose, he'll play a give-and-go with Athanasiu, no doubt. So um, I think you tweeted a stat this morning about how much Manta is tilting the ice on teams. That could be a very real option because he's a guy who I think can impact the game for you in both zones favorably for that second line, if that's the route they choose to go. Yeah, I mean... It's been the case his entire career, but no matter where you trot Anthony Mantha out in the lineup, the wings control the shot share when he's on the ice. Um, and you, it was no, it was no better illustrated than really last night, where every Red Wings forward was sub fifty percent um, in terms of looking at that shot share or that Corsi four percentage, except for Mantha, who was sitting there at fifty eight percent, and that's because when he was getting double shifted. Those lines were generating. When he was not with those lines, those lines weren't generating. Uh, and so it's really impressive to see him. And maybe he's the right guy just because something about his game allows the wings to control the shot share when he's out there. It's not simply who he's playing with. So maybe he has the capacity to elevate or protect that Athanasiu line, still leave Glenn Denning on that line because, you know, his speed has been a nice thing next to Athanasiu. Those two guys can both fly. And you really don't have a lot of other options to play up there unless you're going to pull Svechnikov up there. Um, you know, the other thing to consider, and this is something I didn't think I'd be saying, is it time to bring back top six Justin Abdelkader with how he's been passing from behind the net. He looks like he's been forechecking well, getting the puck to the front of the net. He's been skating really well. And like I said earlier, they've been one of the top lines in the NHL uh, thus far. Is it time to elevate him back up into the top six to see if he has the capacity to play with those guys. Certainly an interesting idea. The the one thing we should probably note is that we've been calling them the fourth line because that's where they've been kind of listed on the lineup. But I think pretty clearly they're getting at the very minimum third line minutes relative to the end Philpola line. And last night, I think they might've even played a little bit more than the second line. So you could, you could maybe argue that advocator is already top six, just an advocator based on ice time. But um, yeah, just in terms of the balancing, I'm always someone like, I don't know if where this comes from, but like when something's working, I'm like the, the type that doesn't want to change it. Right. So if, if I'm Jeff Blaschel, I'm leaving advocator with De La Rose and Helm until they've got, until they have a bad game and, and something needs to change. He's been starting them as a reward for how well they've played and make sure they know they're being recognized. I think leaving them together is just another way to do that, to show, Hey, you guys have earned trust uh, and we're going to leave you together until you give us a reason not to. Uh, if I'm the coaching staff, you know, so I, but I don't know. It's an interesting idea because he does, if he continues to prove that, that he's going to be able to play that style of game, you know, that is kind of a logical endpoint. There's also part of me that's sort of just a, a skeptic of how long that that's going to be able to continue. Uh, and so, you know, if the line has, if the line has it working for him right now, I think you ride it until it goes away, even understanding that it probably will go away at some point, but, but certainly a lot of options for the coaching staff. I don't think they're boxed in by any means, but it's an interesting problem to have just because of the, I think the reasoning for how that second line got created was sound. 
it hasn't worked so far. So is it a trust the process or is it uh, change things up because, you know, there's only 82 games in a season. And if you, if you let it, if you let something fester for three or four, all of a sudden you've used up uh, probably a higher percentage of that season than you would like. So they, they go on a West Coast road trip. I'm, I'm leaving for it uh, Sunday afternoon. So we'll see how things look Monday in Vancouver in terms of the lines in practice. But uh, I, I will be curious to see if they change things up because it does seem like it's probably uh, it's probably time to to see something different. Usually you don't want to change too much after a win. After a three-goal loss, I'm curious if it is time. Uh, the one that I'm cur- most curious about, though, is the Svechnikov. Like, are you, are you someone who thinks he needs to be in the lineup at this point? Are you someone who's willing to be kind of patient as he rehabs? What's, the, what's your stance on that one? I think it's important to, to recognize there's a number of factors we, don't, we aren't privy to know at this point in time. So, you know, Svechnikov's already endorsed that he still feels knee pain. Uh, he still feels twinges of pain when he's playing. Uh, so is this a matter of getting him some NHL money, getting him time around the big team while not necessarily putting so much of a strain on him? Uh, is this let him watch a handful of games from the press box, um, let him get a, an appreciation again for the speed of the game, continue to practice with the team um, at the NHL level? You know, you mentioned this on the last episode that he's got the maturity to to be able to handle this. So I'm not necessarily clamoring for the fact that he needs to play because he's up here but at the same time now that you're in a situation where things aren't working and I think it's very evident to Blashill because both the second line and third line as written out on paper didn't play more than three and a half minutes together um, in last night's game simply because he realized it wasn't working and he needed to continue to switch things up Uh, So at this point, I think now that you have a compelling reason that your current lineup structure isn't working the way it is, I would like to see him draw into a game just to see how he looks. Um, But I personally don't have a problem with it. This guy makes $70,000 in Grand Rapids and makes like $800,000 in the NHL. I have no problem with him making 10 times the salary and sitting up here if there are other factors such as either his knee rehab or just simply getting some more practice time under him if, if that's all the wings are looking for. Yeah, this is conjecture on my part, so don't read too much into it. But you think about what we know about Svechnikov, and he can he can be a guy who can be kind of hard on himself sometimes. And you wonder, you got this guy who's rehabbing from a serious injury. We have heard that, you know, or at least earlier in the preseason, him kind of acknowledging that there was still some soreness that comes with it. Totally understandable. Is it a situation where a guy with kind of that mindset, it, you're, you're kind of making sure that he's not pushing things too hard in the AHL, trying to get there, uh, trying to get to the NHL. By doing it this way, are you kind of sheltering him a little bit from himself in a sense? I, I don't know. Maybe maybe this is reckless speculation, but it's something I've wondered about um, just in terms of what it does for him mentally, confidence-wise. I mean, I think at the, at the very root of it, I take the Red Wings at their word that this is kind of precautionary in terms of they are banged up and they do want, you know, he, he was the best forward not on the roster in the preseason. He was the best forward in Grand Rapids in game one. He absolutely earned the call-up. He was mentally ready for everything that it would entail, even if it meant getting scratched. But I, I got to wonder if there's a little bit of confidence boost that comes with it in terms of him as he gets back to full comfort level, knowing that he already earned it. He's already kind of, quote-unquote, in the NHL, even if he's not getting those games. Is there a value to that just in terms of how he approaches every practice and and eventually every game. I, I don't know about that, but uh, yeah, a little bit of reckless speculation every once in a while, right? 
Yeah, that doesn't hurt anybody. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, let's let's get to kind of bigger picture though. We're five games in now. I don't know um, exactly how relevant a sample it is, but it's it's not nothing at this point. So, how good have the Red Wings been, and and what should we read into it? Yeah, I mean we're we're five games in. Wings are three and two. Uh, I don't think a lot of people thought they would be three and two, but they are three and two, and and, and that's where we're at. Uh, so how much can you really glean from a five-game sample? I think that's an important question to ask. Uh, and so the Wings right now, if you look at their stats from Natural Stat Trick, they have a five-on-five five score and venue adjusted. So basically this accounts for what the score situation is, and that's because when teams tend to get ahead, they tend to relax a little bit and allow more shots against. Venue, different arenas have different scoring uh, and recording of shots, and so there's a little bit of an accounting for that. Um, as well as home and away bias in the sense that home teams tend to play a little bit better, away teams tend to play a little bit worse. Um, So we've accounted for score and venue adjusted expected goals for percentage. And the Wings are sitting at 49.8% as of today uh, per natural stat trick. And so through five games being at 49.8%, what does that really mean? And so Dom Lushizen, uh, an analyst for The Athletic, put out an article in the last couple of days talking about what what can we really tell about a team from the from a five-game sample. Um, and that's because historically we've kind of, you know, it's kind of been determined based on prior work from uh, Dawson Spriggings and Micah Blake McCurdy that about 20 to 25 games is when you really start to have a good understanding of what a team looks like. But Dom actually took five-game samples, and this is a rolling five-game sample, so games one through five, two through six, three through seven, et cetera, et cetera, for every team for basically the last decade, and look to see what the five-on-five score and venue-adjusted expected goals for percentage was in each of those five-game samples, and then looked at where those teams finished at the end to see how much you could truly tell about a team from a single five-game sample. Um, And so his work is actually fascinating because what he basically found is if you're at the extremes, so you're greater than 55% being a really good team or less than 45% being a really bad team, it's pretty clear after those five games that you're going to be a really good team or a really bad team. Um, And so for the Wings sitting at about 49.8%, those teams in his analysis, about 57% of the it was a 57% likelihood that that team would finish at 50% or better, which I think is an important number because if you look at just last year, there were 15 teams in the NHL that had greater than 50% expected goals for percentage. All 15 teams made the playoffs. So it is an important marker of playoff success. And so for the wing sitting kind of right at 49.76% or 49.8%, seeing that 57% likelihood's nice, but it's still, it's barely better than a coin flip. And that's still important because if you flip it back to last year, the Wings actually through five games were at 48.1%, but three of their first four five-game samples, so one through five, two through six, three through seven, four through eight, three of those first four samples were actually better than 50%. Um, And so it's important not to overreact because the Wings were actually in a similar boat last year and ended up finishing with more than 52% of their five-game samples at less than 45% expected goals for percentage. So what can we really say? Not a whole lot, although it's encouraging that they've at least been able to play close to 50%. 
I don't know that they're going to be that much better relative to last year, given that they were in a similar position, but it's an interesting analysis to look at. That's fascinating that they can only be, you know, on the margins a little bit better than they were at this time last year, considering the the difference in record, the difference in buzz, even the difference in just kind of how it's looked. Uh, it doesn't feel really that comparable to the beginning of last year, but uh, that's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, through eight games last year, the Wings were actually north of 50% expected goals for percentage, and that was basically built on the facts that games six, seven, and eight for Detroit last year, they controlled roughly 60% of the expected goals for. And so I think it really illustrates the the problem with small samples, and it really illustrates the need to kind of temper expectations that even though we feel better about this team um, because of their record, the fact is last year when they started off 0-5-2, and they weren't actually playing any worse or really any worse than what we're seeing right now. It's just a simple matter of the breaks that went one way or another. And that's kind of what people and a lot of the statisticians that work in hockey will kind of tell you that that's why goals are a difficult measure to use, particularly in small samples, because it's going to affect those win-loss records, but it could be a lucky bounce this way, lucky bounce that way. And over time, what we're looking to see is how well does a team actually give themselves those opportunities. And so Detroit's not playing really any worse than last year. and They're not playing any better than last year. And so it's important to see how this continues out. Um, I think the one encouraging thing, though, is they are getting more production from that, what we consider the bottom six, even though they're technically playing the second and third most minutes. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So the takeaway there, don't, don't too much overreact to this hot start because it's not that much different from last year. Um, although there are still kind of maybe subtle little things to, to say, Hey, you know, the Red Wings based on what they've done so far, it's not a death sentence either. I think if you, if you read that sentence, don't get too much, don't get too excited because this isn't that different from last year. Uh, we, we may have a little uptick in, uh, in sadness in the Metro Detroit area there, but, uh, not necessarily the takeaway there. The takeaway is more just don't, don't make too many life decisions or conclusions. Please don't uh, spend a whole lot of money booking hotels uh, around playoff time as of right now because uh, the small sample as of now does not tell us a whole lot. Uh, should we get to some listener questions? Yeah, let's let's do it. So one of the ones I wanted to get to was is from Jake, and that is about, you know, it's, it's a little early for this, but everyone seems to be talking about Howard as a, as a trade piece, but would it really be a good idea to trade him? Once the wings are good, he might still be an effective goalie. Where do you come down on that one? This is a fascinating question because last year uh, I had the similar dilemma with should you trade Jimmy Howard? And I think it's entirely contingent on on what you have available to you. Um, So as you get to the trade deadline, there's usually about 20, 22 games left, sometimes even a little less than that, depending on the schedule. And so it it depends. Does Detroit think or do Detroit think they could uh, get away with a model that has Jonathan Bernier and potentially Calvin Picard or Pickard um, coming up from Grand Rapids. And do they think they can get away with that? Do they want Philip Larson in that position? To be honest, I think it's entirely dependent on how Philip Larson looks. So last night in Grand Rapids, I thought he looked pretty well from the highlights I was able to see. He got his first uh, AHL win uh, in, in the Griffins win last night. And so if he continues to develop and looks like he can handle the workload, can looks like he's capable of playing at that AHL level, I think Detroit could entertain moving Howard to see if they can get something for him. 
and could run with a Bernier-Pickard tandem down the stretch to basically tank their way into a better lottery position. Um, should they do that, though, I think is tough because most importantly, I don't want them to feel like they're committed to taking Askarov, the big Russian goalie um, that's projected right now to potentially be a top 10 draft pick. Uh, I don't know that you want to commit yourself into looking at him if and basically using your first round pick on him when there are so many other needs. And, and are you able to pick up a goalie um, in free agency? There's not a lot of good ones out there. So I think the transition plan is most important and it's all going to depend on Philip Larson's development. Not in the Askarov hive. That's, I'm learning new things about you every day on this podcast. You, you know, I goalies, goalies are voodoo. I mean, I'm going to say that uh, with the context that, yes, there are right ways to analyze goalies and you should have tempered expectations. But at least publicly, I haven't seen anybody do a great job of projecting goalie development um, from prospect all the way to NHL. If you look at a lot of the goalies right now, there's a handful that were highly, highly touted um, guys like Carey Price, but there's also a handful that were later round draft picks, mid round draft picks, undrafted that are just really hitting the NHL and surprising you in the way they were developed. Um, I mean, look at a guy like Henrik Lundqvist. He's not like he was a first round draft pick. You look at some of these other goalies that have really developed over the years um, into the top tier goalies, and they weren't world renowned goalies coming out. Maybe we see a difference with guys like Spencer Knight going early last year. Um, but truth be told, there's just a number of goalies that were highly, highly touted in, in years past that just haven't panned out. And so I'm very kind of cautious with burning a first-round pick for a team that needs as much as Detroit um, on a goaltender when I don't know that that's as much of a slam dunk as somebody else might be, as particularly some of those other five guys we talked about um, on the last episode uh, in that spot. Fair enough. My, my stance on the on the Howard thing is just that it's it's always going to just depend on the market, right? Like, you're not necessarily looking to get rid of Jimmy Howard, but I don't think you've put yourself in a situation where uh, you absolutely need to keep him either. I think Jonathan Bernier and Calvin Picard or Pickard, I suppose, is, is the correct pronunciation, um, could could handle it down the stretch for the season and and even into next year if you decided you wanted to go that route and have Philip Larson then get the lion's share of games in Grand Rapids, I think that would be pretty fine. But if you are expecting this team to be a team that's pushing for the playoffs next season, I will say that's kind of the situation where you'd probably want to have Jimmy Howard around. Now, Jimmy Howard's not under contract for next season, so that still leaves the window open for something to that end and doesn't guarantee that he would be here if you didn't trade him. But uh, my philosophy is, 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 as always, whatever is offered is the complete context for what you should be making your decision on. Um, maybe you can let kind of things like the potential for next year to, to make a push toward the playoffs or the draft into that. But, but I'm someone who, when I'm trading, I want the, the lion's share of the consideration to be about what am I getting in return? I don't see anyone giving up a first round pick for Jimmy Howard. So maybe you're talking about a second. And, and at that point um, I think it's, it's kind of tough to pull that trigger. If you do think that you, uh, want to have a a sooner rather than later run at the playoffs, but realistically, I don't know that um, I don't know that we have enough inputs to really analyze that one in too much depth at this point. One of the other ones that stuck out to me from the listeners was from Seth Seth Horton eight one three, who asked, "Does Abdul Kader deserve more time than Athens CU, or is Double A still hurt?" 
Um, for context, Abdelkader got more ice time than Athanasiu last night. He got about 15 and a half minutes. Athanasiu got a little bit less than 14 minutes. What are you thinking about this one? Yeah, it's it goes back to what we talked about just a little bit ago and, and does Justin Abdelkader, I mean, for the way he's been playing so far, basically deserve a promotion. Um, so the ice time stats, you notice, kind of all situations, five on five, they were roughly the same, about 1325 for Athanasiu. Uh, 1304 for Abdulkader. So like you said, that fourth line, quote unquote, really is getting deployed as a second or third line. And effectively, you've got Detroit deploying that top line and then all the other three are getting equal ice time um, from there. And so, you know, I, I don't think it'd be unreasonable. He's moving a lot better than last year. I think he may have had some injury issues that really plagued um, his efficacy last year. But truth be told, you know, that fourth line is generating dangerous chances. They're generating two or three dangerous chances a night, um, particularly over the last three games. I mean, I thought they were the most effective line against the Ducks. Um, I thought they were quite effective last night. Uh, so at some point you have to talk about, is there a different way that we can shuffle things around? I don't necessarily know that it needs to be burying Athanasiu because like I said, he's a he missed a lot of practice time before the season started. He's still getting his game legs under him. He's still feeling out his new teammates. There are a handful of things. And we know just on pure skill, Athanasiu is a far more talented player, um, far more talented offensive player at this point in time uh, in their careers. But, you know, if the goal at the end of the day is is to win games, you may want to consider mixing up the lines a little bit. And, you know, my suggestion was consider putting Abdulkader up in the top six with Athanasiu. I don't think you want to necessarily take away minutes from a guy who can break a game open um, like Athanasiu did so much last year. But I think you do have to be diligent and kind of careful in picking which players are best suited to play with him, which is basically how that second line was constructed in the first place. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's you can take this question one of two ways. Do you take it as did Abdulkader deserve to get more minutes than Athanasiu last night, to which the answer is unequivocally yes. Or do you, as a rule, want to see Abdulkader playing more than Athanasiu, which I think is similarly an unequivocal no. I think with a guy like Athanasiu, like you said, you're waiting for those one or two big plays, and the less time you put him on the ice, the less chance you have of getting one or two of them. So to me, I think you're still trying to play Athanasiu in that range north of 16, 17 minutes, but he does have to hold up his end of the bargain and make sure that his line's not getting burned to the level they were last night. I'm willing to, to grant that even though, you know, you, you kind of laid out what went wrong on those plays, I'm willing to grant that even if they weren't um, necessarily like fluky plays at all, that, that outcomes still in general can be pretty variable. You, you'll get away with that sometimes, and we're not talking about it on the podcast the next day. So I think you're still giving the Athens CU line pretty prominent treatment just because of the talent that's there. Um but, you know, it's the kind of thing where can, can you justify that Abdulkader had more minutes than him last night without question? Do you want to see it as a rule going forward in the next four or five games? Personally, I wouldn't do that. Uh, any questions that stood out to you in, in the in the box? I know we got one about if we'd seen any good movies lately, and I think we both saw the same one this weekend. Yeah, I think we have to talk about El Camino. I think we do. What'd you think? Yeah, you know, I was a huge Breaking Bad fan when it came out, and... To me, the way they wrapped up the the last episode, and I'll try and do this as spoiler-free um, as possible for those that haven't had the opportunity to watch it since it only came out a couple days ago, 
Um, I thought the way that Breaking Bad originally wrapped up was excellent. Uh, I thought all the loose ends were effectively tied. I thought there was just the right amount of, you know, mystique in that did Walter die, did he not die, um, and a couple of other loose ends. But in actuality, like after watching El Camino, I thought that was that would have been the perfect last episode if they had found a way to condense that down to an hour. Um, I thought that would have been an excellent ending for the show with the way that everything wrapped up. Yeah, I think similarly. I think uh, I was a little surprised when I heard they were going to make it. And I certainly, Jesse Pinkman, to me, top five TV character of all time. Just phenomenally done, phenomenally written, brilliantly acted. Shout out Aaron Paul. Um, so I wasn't totally convinced when they announced they were making it that I was going to be happy about it. Um, I certainly did not need any more Todd Alquist in my life. Uh, that was an unwelcome addition. Uh, Jesse Plemons <laughs> is obviously phenomenal too, but that guy scares the shit out of me, that character. When I was in college, I binged Breaking Bad, basically like one Christmas break and then into the start of second semester. And I straight up had nightmares about Todd Alquist because of the way that he treats Jesse in the final, uh, the final season, everything going on there. Uh, I would like wake up in the middle of the night freaking out about, uh, well, I really, you know, I don't want to spoil too much. If there are people out there who somehow still haven't seen breaking bad, you should go watch it. So yeah, Todd features <laughs> reasonably prominently into the first hour. And I was like, Oh no, not this again. But, uh, I was very satisfied with the ending had completely forgotten about kind of what turns into the key plot point. Um, and was, and was really, uh, gripped by that. So I really liked it. I would recommend it. Um, I also have not, uh, I'm not convinced I'm going to sleep as well for the next week. So that's how it is. <laughs> it's, it's a tense show to watch, but it, if you, if you enjoy good, uh, TV and, and good movies, it's, it's another good one from, from that whole kind of series. Anything else you want to talk about before we let everybody go today? No, I mean, we can, uh, just talk about the week ahead and then, uh, as the wings head out on their Canada trip and then we can wrap up. Yeah. It's going to be an interesting one, right? I mean, the, the third game of that series coming in was, was kind of the afterthought going to Edmonton on the second night of a back to back. Suddenly we now have to introduce that team as the undefeated Edmonton Oilers with uh, one of the Edmonton NHL's Oilers. leading goal scorers in James Neal. <laughs> We're talking about the league leading Edmonton Oilers. Uh, you know, I'm really mad at myself for not, just going out on a limb and saying Ken Holland was going to win GM of the year now that he's over in Edmonton, given that he never did it in Detroit because the award didn't exist. But uh, yeah, I mean, we're going to have to talk about league leading Edmonton. And the nice thing is uh, Edmonton's a team that very much parallels to Detroit in terms of their reliance on that top line to really provide. They're going at it at an even more extreme with kind of Dreisaitl and McDavid playing about 25 minutes a night. Um which is just unheard of for forwards really over the last decade or so. Yeah. And, you know, certainly when they're getting contributions from, from guys like Neil, they're going to be hard to beat and you don't expect that to keep up. And at some point it's going to catch up with them. Adam Larson, I believe is out for an extended period of time. Is that right? You know, I haven't actually seen any news on, on Larson. I try super hard not to pay too much attention to Edmonton, but uh, <laughs> well, if know, he's out I, for a period of time, he's one of their best defenders, right? So that's <laughs> that's substantial. Um, right. You know, who knows if Edmonton is is kind of in the same place as they are 
when the when the Red Wings get to them that they are as of right now, even though it's you know less than a week away. But it'll be an interesting trip. Calgary, uh, obviously one of the, one of those great lines with with the Lindholm Gaudreau line. Vancouver is off to a kind of an exciting start. Uh, Quinn Hughes scored his first goal the other night. It was on a missile slap shot. And if Quinn Hughes has a missile slap shot now, uh, well, very sorry for the rest of the league because he is <laughs> going to be just about impossible to stop if that is the case. Uh, anything you're particularly watching over the next week? No, it's just uh, I think this next sample is going to give us even more data on where the wings are going to shake out. I think there's been a lot of excitement. And are they going to be better? Are they going to be worse than last year? Are they going to be better than what we thought? Um, I really think that these next three games are going to be a key test on the road against a couple of decent teams. Uh, it'll give you some more information on to what we can really expect from Detroit. It will. And I think we'll learn a lot even just in the next couple of games with what they decided to do with the lineup, whether they decide to swap Sveshnikov in, whether they decide to just kind of shuffle things, or whether they trust the process that's gotten them to three and two and more or less leave the lines intact. But either way, when we come back to you guys with our midweek episode on The Athletic, which you can subscribe to at theathletic.com slash wings for breakfast, it'll get you a 40% off code, get you access to all of our midweek subscriber-only episodes and a bunch of good content uh, in the written form. Uh, by the time we have that midweek episode, I think we'll even have uh, a little bit more insight into into how things will shape up in the in the short run for the Red Wings. I think that's all for me. So thanks to everybody, as always, for joining us. Thanks to our producer, Chris Meany, and we will catch you guys in the middle of the week.